0: Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward thinking medical professionals doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer.
1: In today's podcast, I catch up with Anna Simmons, who is a clinical psychologist. Earlier today, I caught up with Anna Simmons. Uh, As a psychologist, she knows a lot around what goes on in the brain, and in particular, I quiz her in great detail about the food choices that we make. Hope you're enjoying the series so far. Today, we're going to talk on how we adapt to change. We're recording this towards the end of lockdown. It's not all going to be about COVID, um, but I thought, who would we best have on the show? And it's a real good dear friend of mine and Dan's. We've already made all the introductions for you. How are you this morning? I'm good. Thank you, Steve. How are you? Awesome. Thank you. Can you uh, first of all tell us all about yourself and then let's jump into yeah, adapting to change. Uh, we'll talk about you know, changing post-COVID. Let's have a chat about you know, how we think mentally about weight loss and emotional eating and things like that. But let's introduce you first of all. Absolutely,
0: thank you. So I'm Dr. Anna Simmons. I'm a consultant clinical psychologist. Uh, I work in private practice in Nottinghamshire as a director of a company called Elysian Psychology and I work at the University of Lincoln on the doctorate in clinical psychology course as well. And I've also got two children, so I'm quite a busy lady, (laughs) I would say.
1: (laughs) How old are the kids, Anna?
0: They're 10 and seven, a boy 10, a girl 7.
1: Oh, fantastic. So, so, yes. Very, very busy. And a little dog then. as
0: well that I'm hoping is not going to snore while we're talking, as I said to you. So apologies if uh, there's a bit of a snoring noise
1: in the background. So, well, we've had dogs on this show, we've had cats appearing out of nowhere on shelves behind oh, really? an the oh, so. yes. house.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it happens, it happens. Working from home, the joy, thing.
1: Absolutely. So let's talk about adapting to change. Obviously, you know, COVID for some. Yeah. Even my own kids, we've got you know, a couple of them that have loved the experience. We've got a couple that have hated the experience because you have know, been isolated from the friends. Uh, we've all got the same sort of stories. Grandparents we haven't been able to see. Uh, I, I didn't even get to see my own grandson for the, the first two months. But we've all got those stories. Um, and what, what are you finding you know, with your clients and people that are coming to see you? And what advice can we share on you know, how we adapt to change?
0: I think, obviously, everybody's going to be different in terms of how flexible they are in adapting to change. So I think some people are naturally averse to change and some people will be naturally more open to change. So it kind of depends on you as a person. Um, I think we've had to go through quite a lot of change, haven't we? If you think kind of lockdown was end of March, but some people were kind of shielded before then, we actually had to change quite quickly. And I think a lot of people did that quite well. I appreciate there's a lot of anxiety, I think, particularly around the the bit before lockdown and then the first few weeks. But actually, a lot of people seem to have got into the swing of life now. Um, And as the restrictions have been lifted slowly, what I'm noticing is a lot of people, are not a lot of people, some people are experiencing some anxiety about actually reintegrating back into the world because... For a lot of us, our lives were busy and demanding and there was a lot going on and we've had a change of pace. And for some people, they're thinking, but I quite like some elements of that and I want them to stay. And for the people, it's simple things like I'm really scared to go to a shop. What are the shops like? I haven't been. How am I going to interact with my friends when I do actually see them or my grandson or whoever it might be that we haven't seen? So I think a lot of people are just getting their heads around it and unfortunately some people have got too a lot of us have got too much time to think and of course the more that we spend time in our heads the more that we ruminate the more that we kind of create scenarios that we perhaps aren't that aren't helpful Um, and we can talk ourselves into being really worried about things Um, but i think it's important to remember that as quickly as change came and we had to adapt very quickly and we didn't like it and we didn't want to do it we did it you know, and anybody watching this who's thinking, I'm really quite anxious about a lot of things. Um, you know, you did adapt to change initially, you know, so that shows that you can change and you will adapt again. We just don't always like it. and It's natural to have a, a kind of resilience against change we we as human beings you know we don't ha- always have a lot of certainty in our lives and and to manage that we try and have some control over certain things and what happened with with lockdown is we lost some of that control of some of those things and anxiety when we feel out of control makes us want to control so you know anxiety will be trying to protect you and say well don't go to the shop or don't see that person in case you feel unsafe or you might get unwell and I think it's just about having a sort of very clear rational head and sort of saying to it but I have done change before there have been, been lots of times in your life where you'll have managed change and successfully too so it's about having some self confidence in yourself you can do it I don't know whether you'd like me to talk through some specific tips Steve about that
1: yeah no, no, that, on, that would or... be lovely I'll just interject one thing there it's got yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't I didn't, I realised something that you just said <laughs> and, and I had but it's so poignant that you know, when people are busy all the time, you don't, you know, you sometimes don't have time to stop and think, which can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. But of course, what's made COVID so different, as you've just said, is we've had a lot more time to analyze things in the head oh. and you can certainly over analyze things. And you know a lot of people are fearful. I always say fear is an acronym yeah. for false expectations appearing real. And most things aren't as bad as you ever expect that they're going yes. to be. But of course, this, is, this, this event, and there's always events going on in our life that, that, that can be stressful and things that change. But now you've got something that's about change, but with so much thinking space, that yes. many people probably have overanalyzed it and come to the conclusion that, that you know, this is a, a difficult thing to accept.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, the way that thoughts work on a very basic level is when your mind is busy, the thoughts can't get in. When your mind is empty thoughts can get in. So it's that whole scenario where you think, you know, you've had a busy day and you think, well, oh, I'll have a lovely relaxing bath or you sit on the train or the bus on the way home and you think, this is nice. I'll have a bit of time just to be quiet. And all those thoughts just kind of come on in and all the things that are stressing you come in. And for some people there has been more time to do that. But I think that's also a positive thing because it's allowed a lot of people to do a lot of healing and to to really sit and think and reflect upon their lives, their relationships, the quality of their lives, their futures, in a way that we just haven't had time to do before. The thing about thoughts is, you know, I don't know how, you know, people listen to this, how aware you are of your thoughts, but sort of you're, you we have up to like 80,000 thoughts a day. It's one every 1.2 seconds. It's a lot of thoughts and thoughts might be, even as we are talking, there's you know, somebody thinking, Oh, what shall I have for lunch? Or, Oh, there's a bird outside. You know, our brains are constantly narrating to us all the time, but it's our thoughts that give us our feelings. So understandably, if you're having thought of, you know, something very, you know, tr- always try to work out the specific thought. So if you're worried about thinking, I don't want to go out the house or, well, what specifically is it about going out the house? Is it you're anxious about having bumping into somebody and they might stand too close? Is it you don't know how things will work in the shop? Is it you, you're worried that you'll have some awkward interactions? Is it a social anxiety? Is it to con- connected to your health? What is it about? And it's about trying to capture those thoughts and reframe them into a way that makes sense for you. Because it's our thoughts that give us our feeling. For every feeling we have, there is a thought first.
1: Yeah, no, that's really, really powerful stuff, isn't it? And and I read a great book called The uh, The Chimp Paradox. And, and in there, oh, yeah. uh, you know, he talks about the the, sort of the rational brain at the front, then the deliberate the brain in the middle where, you know, it's more like the monkey. It's all your thoughts and your emotions. And it's, it's how you balance the two and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and realise it's natural to have thoughts because that's a certain part of your brain. But it's also then the computer at the front and how you balance them up. It sort of dictates, you know, how you can control, you know, many of these feelings about change. But yeah, you said, let's give some tips uh, about and some scenarios around uh, change post-COVID. Let's jump straight in
0: yeah so I think it's about like I said realizing that you have managed change before so having some confidence in yourself that you can manage it again and sometimes change comes to us when we don't want it to and we we often initially will go to that's a bad thing (laughs) I don't want that to happen that's out of my control so know that like you just said we're we're going to have the thoughts the brain is going to kick off and the chimp paradox they would say it's the chimp brain which is sort of at the back here of your brainish and what we need to get going is the frontal lobe bit your human brain which controls the thoughts and is the thing that sort of we as humans have. Um, And really it's about um, acknowledging that it's okay to to resist change initially and just to... say okay well I'll sleep on it I'll kind of not do anything rash to start with like any decision you know you sleep on it you don't make things decisions under fear you know you don't say oh you know I've got this job offer I'm going to turn it down because I'm too scared to go out the house and go to work you know you sit on it and you sleep on it and I think it's about working out so if I was working therapeutic with somebody in a session and they were anxious about change or something in particular I'd draw out a ladder on a piece of paper, and I'd put a number 10 at the top of the ladder and a zero at the bottom. And I'd say to them, I get them to rank or say to me the things that make them feel anxious, and we'd rank everything. You know, ten being the most anxious, not not at all. And then what we do is with specific strategies, um, which I'll share with you, um, is that you gradually expose yourself to the things that make you feel anxious. So you'd start with something that makes you one or two anxious. So just standing on the doorstep, for example, if you're worried about going out the house, or if you're worried about being in a public space, going to a park that might be quiet, or something like that, and just gradually going up and 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 customizing the brain really and retraining your brain to know that these things are safe and they're okay while saying to yourself, I am safe. I am okay. You will have that pull of thoughts of, I don't like this or the resistance thoughts, but sort of trying to over, consciously override them and saying, but I am okay. I am all right. Nothing bad is happening right now. And so gradually working through that, that ladder and what would was a 10 originally as everything becomes easier would will drop down. So a 10 doesn't stay a 10. It becomes, I don't know, a five or a six according to how you then feel because you're used to all these things that you're doing. So really taking a practical approach to it. Um, emotionally kind of doing it when you're ready um, and trying to see the gain in it. You know, you're doing this and you're feeling anxious because you don't want something to change. But actually, how will you feel when you've made that change? So most of us find change scary or doing new things scary. But it's okay to forward focus and think, well, how will I feel when I've done it? So when I have done that thing that worries me or that change or made a decision or whatever, how will I feel when I've done it? And the chances are, you know, you're going to feel much better about it rather than sit on it. You know, we have to be proactive with things that make us anxious. Otherwise, they just sit there and they kind of run through our blood and it just goes and it goes. And the thoughts carry on and carry on. And we don't really make much progress apart from spiral ourselves into sort of a black hole of thoughts and and not a good place mentally. So it's about, okay, but what is doable for now? What can I actually achieve now that, that feels okay and is manageable and building that up slowly over time? um for some people it will be more um about a sort of what we would call a psychological core belief so something in us that sort of says you know i'm not good enough or i'm not capable of doing things or the world feels unsafe to me and those are bigger things to have to unpick but if you have a little bit of time they're great to unpick kind of in a therapeutic sense, but if you don't have the finances or the capacity to do that, I think it's just about sort of challenging those as you're doing things and th- you know, even the small thing that you're doing, really praising yourself for doing that and making that change and then like, like gradually working up the ladder, the hierarchy of things and being really proud of yourself for doing it. You know, we've some people I was speaking to a friend the day who hasn't been out the house for 13 weeks and wow. she's like, I'm actually really anxious about going out and she's been walking a dog, sorry, but you know, she hasn't been in public places or where there's people. People, which she's really anxious and we were talking it through and it's normal if you haven't been at house for 13 weeks you're going to feel a bit anxious because it's something going out is very new and different so it's okay that it is
1: yeah belief systems are really important aren't they uh, the, the the primal reset on the front of the book that we send everybody we put their name so say mm. uh, Anna we go primal Anna because it's about belief systems we need people to believe that they are that way before they even get there, because if you don't can't believe that that's you and that you're going to lose, you know, the four stone, the five stone, the, the twenty kilos, whatever, unless you can really believe it, the chances of success and sustained success really sort of um, you know uh, diminish. So, making people understand that, that look, you, you can be that person you want to be. Because back to that that anxiety and certainly weight loss, people have, you know, they've eaten a certain way for, you know, none of us put on weight that quickly. Might feel like we do, but the the science says it's not that. Most people put on Mm. two to three pound a year, which is slow. So most people, when they get, you know, quite a lot overweight, it's taken a long time to get there. That's a lot of rewiring in the brain and retraining on Mm. food and and people go, well, I'm going to miss this, I'm going to miss that, I'm going to miss that. But I loved your idea there of, uh, you know, could you apply your ladder technique to weight loss, you know, what am I anxious about changing? Am I going to miss, you know, cutting down on the sandwiches, the Greg, the McDonalds, the whatever. Could you apply that technique with your ladder to weight loss?
0: Yeah, I, I suppose you could. I mean, I think it's, I think with weight loss, it's about being really honest with yourself about what the weight means. So, you know, I've met people that have worked, with, weight loss isn't my specialty by any means, but obviously it's something that I come across in emotional eating uh, quite often. And, um, you know, th- what's the value of putting on the weight? And for some people, there's a real weight can be emotional in the sense that it's protective so sometimes people put on weight because they want to protect themselves almost like a physical barrier either from other people or from the world and it's important to realize okay so if that, if you know i believe what you're saying is right that weight loss is slow weight gain sorry is slow one of the reasons that's, to me, that's happened. So how have you been feeling across those years? What's been going on for you? Is is there a reason that you might want this cushion here? And I think you'll find a lot of people you'd know more than, you're more of an expert about this than me, that people will, um, you know, sort of say, I want to lose weight, I want to lose weight. But actually do you? I think it's just about being really honest about where your motivation lies. And so I guess you could use a ladder for very small motivational things like, you know, if you know that you eat, I don't know, a bag of big bag of kettle chips or whatever, how hard is it for you on a scale of nought to ten not to do that or just to cut that down and have a few? You know, I think you could use it in terms of just gradually reducing things or introducing healthier things, I guess. But weight, weight gain is certainly a very emo, emotive, um, it's emotive subject in itself talking about it, but it's, it's definitely got its psychological components. And I like what you said about the belief side of things. Absolutely. So, you know, if you want to change, if you want to feel different, you know, it's, it's, it's no good just saying, well, I want to lose the weight. I want to do this. How would it feel if you lost the weight? If you if you close your eyes and imagine yourself looking in the mirror, wearing the clothes that you want to wear and looking how you want to wear. How does that feel? And it's getting that feeling. That's how we manifest by things, by getting the feeling of the thing that we want and focusing on that and almost walking around your day as if I am that. I am a size 12. I am a size 10 or whatever it is you want to be. I am that. And how would that feel? How would that alter you as a person? And how and how, how would you feel about yourself? And to, to to really capture and almost bottle that feeling, like pretending, you know, that you're not an anxious person. It's okay to be anxious, like I'm saying. But, you know, if you want to walk out into Sainsbury's and you think it might make you feel anxious, while walking around pretending, okay, this doesn't make me anxious, okay. I used to do this all the time. You know, it's a, kept capturing that feeling. So absolutely, I totally agree with you about the belief there
1: a difficult one to ask um well, it's not difficult but uh, a good friend of mine Glenn Lehrer, his mom lived to 104 and uh, and and i said to Glenn, what you know what what's what's the magic pill was it a diet was it a food you know how did your mom you know do so well and and he said i honestly believe my mom lived to 104 because of her ability to accept change he, he talked about you know when when his dad died his mom had had a stroke many many years before and and recovered from that and then for the last seven or eight years was wheelchair-bound, but he said every time something went bad for mom, her ability to accept that life wouldn't be the same again and accept that change was part of her success of longevity. Do you, do, do, do you think that that is the case? And if that is the case, let's keep talking more about then how we can help people to accept change more. And um, any more tips around, around that sort of area?
0: I think acceptance is absolutely key with anything emotional that's going on. Like I said before, when you get into resistance, it's very difficult. If you kind of think it's like this, but I want it to be like this, you're going to get some massive emotional conflict in between the two. And that's where distress and anxiety and depression and, and, and things like that come in. So acceptance is key. I think people that cope with, with the corona changes were the people that just sort of accepted it more quickly. You can't really force yourself to accept something. I think it takes, it's it's a natural progress. I think you can encourage it on. And I think it's about trying to sometimes look for the benefits and things. It is about retraining yourself to sort of say, okay, so I don't like this, but this is what's happening. Having some, uh, for me personally, it's all about understanding, well, why does this have to happen? So what, and I'll explore that with clients as well. So what are the benefits of this change? But also why is it happening? You know, and just trusting that things kind of, you know, things around us sometimes we don't always know best and so we might think we want something one way but when it happens another way actually that that could be better there's a possibility that could actually be better I heard of somebody yesterday I know to a friend who was sadly made redundant uh, but actually had quite a positive mindset on it by the end of the day thinking well actually maybe that means I can get a better job I didn't really like the one that I had anyway but I appreciate that you know she's maybe in a more fortunate position that she can think like that but it's almost encouraging the thoughts to move like that really um and not fighting them. I think the whole thing about any thought management, whether it's acceptance or anxiety, is if you imagine that's the door to your brain and you get thoughts coming in, I don't like this change. I don't like this. I'm knocking on the door, whatever. You just have to let that open the door, let the thought in. Just say, okay, I know that you're there. I know this thought that makes me anxious. We've talked how thoughts link to feelings. That thought makes me anxious. I don't like that very much. It will naturally move itself on by acknowledging it. If you don't let the thoughts in, the worries in, Or you're resistant to the change what will happen is that thought will just bang harder and louder and it will break down the door and you will be left with a horrible big thought to have to deal with that makes you feel even worse and then you've got to work even harder to shift on so by just sitting with the thoughts and just saying okay I accept that's the case I accept that I don't feel happy in my current situation I accept that I'm really worried about money I accept that I'm not happy about my weight that's quite freeing isn't it if we just sort of go, okay, this is how it is, you're going to have to sit with the sadness of that and, and, and the, the difficult feeling. And I think this is where people get resistant to change is that there's so much, so many people are fearful of sitting with emotional pain as if it's a bad thing. This is why sometimes people overeat because they're numbing a pain while people might drink too much alcohol or, or take drugs or whatever. It's a, the whole process is the same. It's a numbing of the emotions. And actually we can sit with emotional pain we can learn so much from sitting with pain and the discomfort of thoughts we don't like, the discomfort of feelings we don't like. It's a bit like a wave, you know, that the discomfort comes up. I say to clients, be, be like um, as I'm a surfboard and ride the wave. It's going to come down again. And yes, at the peak of the wave, things are going to be really tough. But what sometimes we do is we come off the wave and we just do something. So I feel really, if we're using food as an example, I feel really uncomfortable. I feel really bad about myself. I feel like a terrible person. I don't feel worthy of love. I don't feel worthy of care, whatever. It might be that triggers your, if it's emotional eating, that. Um, so go and have you know, something that, you know, you go and do something that makes you feel better. I like have a couple of donuts or something and you you've, you've just made yourself feel better. So you've come off that surfboard very quickly. But what you've missed is the whole learning curve of the wave coming down the other side where that feeling will go, where you can really do your psychological work to ride it down, making yourself feel better. Um, And then when you get to that end place, you feel so much better that you didn't get off the surfboard. But I think we just I think and society doesn't really help us into really riding out emotional pain. There's so many We're just taught to avoid it. And I think it's unrealistic to think that we should be happy all the time. You know, even think about change specifically, it's going to feel uncomfortable. You know, lots of things do make us feel uncomfortable. We can't be just comfortable and content and happy all the time. It's not humanly possible. I'd say on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being the most happy, not not at all, my experience clinically is that most people operate between about a 4 and a 6 kind of range. And that's pretty average, but we will go a bit above that and a bit below. And that's normal. So I think it's about creating realistic expectations as well.
1: Is social media, you know, sort of making that problem, amplifying that problem in the sense that, you know, another thing I teach my kids is, you know, comparison is a theft of happiness. Uh, And, and, you know, whenever the kids are on social media, whatever platform it is these days, um, you know, you're comparing the snapshot of your friend's life, but they're always putting up the happy slide photographs, the happy images, uh, mentioning the great things they've done because that's mm-hmm. the bit we always try and portray outwardly. And that mm-hmm. comparison, I've always compared. And, and I think you know, part of the problem, and I'd love to get your view on this, you know, part of the problem with social media, sometimes you just got to shut yourself mm-hmm. off and go, actually, a bit of gratitude. You know, I've, I've got, still got this. I might have lost this, might have lost my job, might have da 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 but a bit of gratitude, you know, inward looking rather than that constant looking outwards and, and, and comparing. Is that a, a fair a place for many people to start looking?
0: Oh, absolutely, and you know, I mean, I think we're all guilty of it. I've got a social media Instagram um, that I use for work and Facebook, and I'll be honest with you, that's I don't put on the hard days. I don't put on the the days where I'm tearing my hair out, or my children making me feel very stressed, or I've had a bad day, or not done a good, I've not done a good job that day, you know, because that's not what people want to see. And I think we've got into it, and it's such a shame. And I do actually follow some people on Facebook and things that are very honest and realistic about things that have gone wrong in their day and I have so much respect for them but I think it takes a lot of courage a lot of bravery to do that because we make ourselves very vulnerable I mean I work with a lot of teenagers and social media is just so difficult for them because it's a time anyway being a teenager where you're questioning yourself am I clever enough pretty enough and there's, there's they sort of core beliefs we talked about earlier are kind of being formed and cemented and social media doesn't help with that i think it's just about realizing whether you're a teenager a child or an adult that social media just isn't real and it doesn't capture what's going on like i've been honest with you today and said mine doesn't capture what goes on it's a snapshot of the positives of my life um and that's what everybody does so as long as you use it and keep that in mind i think that's okay and i think it's also about taking responsibility so if you've had a bad day let's say you know you, you have a bad day with your family or things you know you try to have a nice day trip and it hasn't worked ever and then you go on Facebook and you see people with their smiley photos on of their perfect families and it just makes you feel terrible so take your responsibility thinking right I've had a difficult day if I use social media to pick myself up then that's fine if that makes me feel better but if I think I'm going to see something that actually makes me feel so much worse and triggers something in me like I'm not a good enough parent or my family life isn't right or you know then don't go on it and that's your responsibility to to actually don't go on it at that point, because you might see something that massively triggers you.
1: Yeah, I thought what you said was really, really powerful, actually. In fact, just going back a few minutes ago, you know, saying that most people, in, in truth, the happiness is somewhere, you know, on a scale of one to ten, between, say, mm. four and six. But mm. if you're always seeing photos and images and you're oh, thinking and comparing that everybody else is at a ten... Then you're gonna go down and down on your own scale of happiness. Whereas if you realize that that is the, their snapshot of happiness, but they're also in that probably range of four to six. And if we aim for that, we're probably fine. We get upper six and maybe even get above that. If we're only aiming for 40 to 60% happiness, we'll probably get much happier if we just realize you know, that is just the way the brain works.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the way feelings work. We're all tending with have- our thoughts time like i was saying earlier and also our feelings all the time our thoughts produce feelings so i think it's just about setting realistic expectations of ourselves We can't be happy all the time but i think and this i guess this can we can we can um think about food in this regard as well you know if you wake up and you feel grotty or you know you think you have a bad morning it's really easy to write off the rest of the day isn't it and say well that's the day done rubbish i'm not gonna i'll make an effort now or it's rubbish i oh, can't be bothered you know and and, and it's like i think the I remember reading some research years ago. that said that women, women, unfortunately, we were worse for this. That so let's say we ha- we we eat something we shouldn't. You know, we have that that muffin in the morning, and then we we say, "Well, the rest of the day's a write-off now." So I might as well I might as well have fish and chips for dinner, and you know, half a bottle of wine because what doesn't matter now. But actually, what's really important psychologically is the bounce back rate. So it's it, bounce back is the most important thing. We're all going to get things wrong, all of the time. Ta- well, most of the time because we're human and we're not perfect. So having a muffin you know, at 10 o'clock and then feeling bad about it doesn't mean that you have to then eat awfully for the rest of the day. If you have one glass of wine and you think, oh, what another? okay, you can still stop at two. Um, And it's about sort of again projecting forward and say well how will I feel if I do put the rest of that cake in the fridge or if I put the, the lid back on that bottle of wine how will I feel when that when I haven't had that thing um and actually you'll probably feel sort of better but I think it, it's again compassion focused therapy would be encouraging lots of compassionate thoughts and so if you do something wrong so saying but it's okay like okay I had the muffin okay sit with the feeling We'd, we were talking about how emotional pain feels difficult sit with the feeling go I don't feel great that I had the muffin. Like maybe I wish I hadn't had the muffin. I don't feel great about it. Okay, but what I can do now is make sure that I have something really healthy later and not to write off the day. So making sitting with the discomfort of the feeling, which is what people don't do, and perhaps the the eating and the rest of the day of the unhealthy things is a way to sort of just forget what's happened um, because of the emotional content of eating. Um, but just sort of say, okay, but how will I feel if I if I pull this back in? but not in a forced way, in a very gentle, kind way. And actually knowing that you deserve to feel to look after your body you know there's a lot a lot of people have a lot of self-worth self-esteem issues I'm not good enough I don't deserve to look good I don't deserve to eat well whatever it might be I don't deserve to nurture myself and that's really where psychologically weight loss needs the input Um, but I think just giving knowing you can have a second chance just stopping yourself at the discomfort of the guilt whatever it is that you might feel for eating doing saying the thing that you didn't like and then think right but how can I turn this around that's resilience. That's the bounce back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And did you, do you prescribe to a lot of uh, Dr. Robert Lustig's for about the difference between pleasure and happiness and really understanding, you know, the difference with the two different sort of neurotransmitters and quite often, you know, you're trying, trying to teach your own brain to go, look, I'm chasing pleasure, 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 but actually that's not really what's going to give me the happiness long term and sort of analysing your thoughts. So, you're about to go and have the donut and you go, okay, I understand that's pleasure. I understand the brain's asking me, the monkey in the brain, the chimp is saying, have the donut, have the donut. But then the rational bit of the brain is going, but I am on this weight loss, I'm you know, trying to get my health regained um, and, and trying to teach your brain that pleasure maybe and happiness aren't one and the same thing.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think happiness is a really tricky subject. And again, I wouldn't say I was an expert on this, but obviously were people who are struggling with mood. And I really believe that happiness comes from small things. So it comes from you know, kind of, I came back from the school run and made myself a nice coffee, which I was drinking when we were chatting initially, you know, but that makes me happy. You know, we can't all go on holiday or buy a car or do something big all the time, especially at the moment. And hopefully, you know, lockdown has been really good for teaching people what makes you happy, you know, and be mindful in the moment, like going for a dog walk and thinking this is actually really nice and enjoyable, you know, not being on your phone, but being present in the moment. I think, there's something about when we think we were talking about the wave earlier and kind of being on a surfboard and I think you can really in terms of um I guess retraining your brain manipulate it a little bit in in, in a way play tricks on it uh, that you know that you're doing but things like for example you might have a piece of cake or something I don't know or something and you might think oh I really want another piece of cake what you can do is leave it five minutes and because he urged because obviously this sh- with the sugar and everything you might think oh but i really want a bit more and you want to you want to bounce back you don't want to you don't want to have the rest of the cake your brain saying don't have the rest of the cake you know this isn't good for you you're supposed to be on this diet but part of you, your your t- chimp brain and probably your tummy and all your blood sugar levels are going But well, have the cake have the cake um and so what you can do is say Well, i'll leave it five minutes And I'll see if I still want the cake in five minutes. So what's happening on your wave of the emotional pain or the distress coming up is that you're starting to come up the wave. It's starting to get uncomfortable. After five minutes, the urge to really want the cake might have come down a bit. Your brain will have distracted itself, as we said, lots of thoughts, lots of things going on. And if it hasn't completely come down and you still feel like you want the cake, you say, well, I'll give it another five minutes. And I'll see how I feel. And you can keep doing that. Or if five minutes feels really hard, two minutes or one minute. And just keep assessing. Because it gives you then time to think, oh, but how will I feel then if I have it? You know, so I think that delaying strategy, we use it with OCD actually. It's a technique that I've just borrowed from there. But in terms of delaying the gratification it's, it's, and the urges, it's actually quite good for that.
1: No, that's absolutely uh, priceless advice because... It, <laughs> That's kind of what we, you you talked earlier on, like thousands of thoughts that happen a day. Uh, But of course, some of those are conscious, some of them are subconscious. And most eating, especially as we put on weight slowly, slowly, slowly over many years, many, in fact, most of our uh, reasons for eating, we don't even think about it. We just pick that thing up or we stop at the McDonald's and we have it and it's all subconsciously, it's all around that sort of that trigger, that cue, sort of the action of the eating and then the reward process, the pleasure at the back end but we do it subconsciously. And and when you are trying to lose weight or trying to change anything in your life, um, would you agree that a lot of those processes in the head when it comes to food is we just don't often stop and think about making that. It's just subconscious a lot of food decisions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think when, when I'm working therapeutically with somebody, it's about really raising awareness of the thoughts. It is for any situation, if you're anxious or low, what are you thinking, get the specifics. But for eating, what's you know what's the reason for eating? What's the you know how aware are, are you of what you're eating? Um, and a lot of us mindfully eat. I mean people that suffer from binge eating disorder, you know that can eat a loaf of bread, a bag of cookies, whatever it might be, um, you know they they say that they don't really taste it. It's a it's a very frantic eating way of eating and it's really just to get the sensation of fullness in the body so i think a lot of us mindlessly eat you know that's how you end up sitting on the sofa eating half a box of chocolates and looking at it and going oh i've had half a box of chocolates because we don't realize we're watching telly and our thoughts are on the telly in the program not actually what we're picking up and putting in our mouths same with drinking the wine we were saying earlier so it's quite normal it's quite common but i think raise if you want to change any behavior raising your awareness of what's going on internally is hugely important and being mindful of you know so okay I'm eating this chocolate I'm having this thing but I'm really tasting it I'm really enjoying it and then you probably won't want another five you know you've just enjoyed the one or two that you've had there's a there's a thought leader called Eckhart Tolle I don't know if you've heard of him he's written some really incredible books The Power of Now is a really good one but he talks about how he doesn't he's got himself to the point he doesn't even need a glass of wine because he can just look at the bottle of wine and appreciate it Because he can imagine what it would taste like and what it would look like. Or he'll have one glass and not even a whole glass because he's tasted it. And he's just been in the moment. He's like, for the moment, that's all that I need. That's okay. And that wine is always there for another time. I think, again, the psychology of eating, sometimes it comes from a childhood history of not having enough. There wasn't enough food, so you, you had to pile on the food or get it when you could. Like you said earlier, we've had that mentality perhaps um, the way we're built anyway from from kind of ancient you know, uh, caveman times, eat when we can. And some of us are still working on that basis, I guess. So mindfully eating, being present in what you're eating. Um, and again, not condemning yourself if you do eat the wrong thing, but just forgiving yourself and kind of moving on.
1: Yeah, great advice. Thank you very much. Talk to me about how important it is to sometimes stop going for the perfect goal, um, to be aware of the fact that you know, treat, being kind to yourself, I, I hear this a lot with uh, psychiatrists that, uh, that I speak to, and people especially around the children areas, two people, a lot of people beat themselves up too much. How important is internal kindness?
0: Oh, it's incredibly important. So there is a therapy called compassion-focused therapy, which has been sort of devised by a man called Paul Gilbert, um, and it it basically works on the idea that we should be kinder to ourselves in our, in our mind. So for some people, that's very hard, and I think we're A lot of us are hard on ourselves, whether that's because, again, we don't think we're good enough or we think we have to have very high standards or whatever it might be. It's good to sometimes work out the reason. Uh, Did you have parents that were kind to you, for example? Did you have role models that were forgiving and understanding and allowed you to grow by making mistakes or not? Um, And so when our own voices and our own heads aren't always very nice to us, say, for example, you eat something and you feel very, you know, you, you instantly kick in you know, oh, you're so stupid or you're so fat, you shouldn't be doing that. I can't believe you've let yourself down again. Those sorts of things. I'm trying to think, where does that come from? Is that your voice or is that somebody else's? And if you can't make your own voice kind and forgiving along the lines of, you know what? Okay, so I had the thing. I feel bad that I that I had that. It's okay that I, that I don't feel great about it. I accept that's how I feel. It's not the end of the world. I can, you know, I can make better decisions again today. It doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't make me a terrible, you know, it doesn't mean that my weight loss plan is gone. It just means that sometimes I'm going to get things wrong. What's the reason I ate that muffin? Was I feeling really, what was the emotional component to it? Was I needing to feel nurtured at that point? Was I feeling stressed? Was it just a sugar thing? Was it a pattern? What was it? Um, and when we struggle to put, if if that's hard for you, think of somebody in your life that is compassionate. So it could be a friend, a colleague, you know, perhaps a grandparent that you had, um, somebody that you think that was, really kind to you and would say to you you know you're doing your best you've got this this is okay come on you're always trying your hardest you just need to let it go and move on and tomorrow's another day or the afternoon's another part of the day it's okay i still love you it's all good you know and saying that to yourself that's it that's it's really powerful stuff if you're not used to doing it
1: no that's that's great advice and uh, quite uh, i mean i've always been a goal setter and set a goal that's what we're going to try and do uh, and then I've, I've been thinking a lot and talking to uh, you know a lot of people in your field recently, and I realized that goal setting is probably the worst thing you can ever, ever do because, first of all, let's say it's a weight loss goal and you're trying to get to that exact weight and your weight waiting. On. So all the way getting to that point, you're disappointed because you're not where you want to be. When you hit that goal, the motivation, well, I've already hit it now, then that's when people put the weight back on. So what I'm trying to teach people at the moment is try and replace a actual goal with the journey or the method because it's about the journey, and if it's about, you know, if you do end up falling off the wagon for one day, don't beat yourself up, be kind to yourself, because it's not about the, you know, and also with goal setting, quite often you can set a goal that you could go way beyond, but the limit was the fact that you set the goal at, at, at that way or the business at that size, because you set that as hardwired in the brain, that you, you don't go beyond that, and, and and you know, you might not gain, you know, complete health, so uh, it's that journey, isn't it, and not and being kind to yourself on that journey, so look, you know, occasionally, you know, things are going to go wrong. Things are going to go wrong. And occasionally, and and back to your bit earlier on where you said being then mindful, maybe then not to have the second piece of cake.
0: It's incredibly important to be kind to ourselves, but I think it's something that we don't always do, Um, especially in relation to food. It might be that we're quite happy. We might eat something and have quite punishing thoughts about ourselves. You know, like, I can't believe you've done that. That's so stupid. You'll never be thin. No one will ever like you. Whatever the value is of kind of being slim that you that you believe about. Um, and so some of us aren't very good at putting in those, um, those kind of thoughts, the thoughts that are forgiving and that appreciate that we're human beings and we make mistakes and that that's okay that's how we learn so maybe that you weren't allowed to make mistakes growing up or maybe you were and you were you know you had a parent around you that was forgiving or you might have been, had harsher people around you who didn't allow for mistakes or needed you to be a certain way or you had to be a certain way to be liked or you know you had to be a people pleaser these are often actually responses to trauma so you know we tend to see overeating people that have experienced some sort of trauma in their lives particularly childhood so if you're struggling to put those compassionate kind thoughts in for yourself think of somebody who does offer those to you hopefully you've got somebody in your life who can be encouraging can be loving whether it's a partner a friend a colleague just somebody that you know and think okay what would they say to me in this situation and hopefully they say something along the lines of look okay you didn't do the right thing by eating that but that's okay it's not the end of the world you're still a lovely person. They still love you. Everything's going to be okay. Tomorrow's another day. You've got this. It's all right. Nothing bad's happening. It's okay. And so generating that from somebody else, if you're unable to do it for yourself, a lot of us are highly self-critical. Um, it's not uncommon.
1: And when we go through periods of change, whether that be you know, post-COVID, whether that be change to a diet, or we're trying to lose some weight, um, being too critical could throw you off the Path completely do you think you know and that's why that self-compassion that self sort of inner self-worth is important because as soon as if, if you're too critical and something goes wrong quite often you can just ah that's it i'm done um and i guess that's what happens with a lot of diets i guess
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, being critical of yourself might be one of the reasons that you eat in the first place. You know, if you don't feel great about yourself and you're looking for ways to feel better about yourself, it may be that food has given you that temporary feeling. So if you think about food sometimes being used as an emotional void where emotionally we feel a bit empty, um, you know, food is used to fill that void and is an attempt often to feel nice to feel good if you've got a full tummy or you're full of the sugar or whatever it might be or the carbs you get a certain sensation and you feel nice but actually there's other ways of doing that so by not being critical to yourself and being nice to yourself in your head you're creating an alternative really to having to eat.
1: One of the problems well certainly I'm I'm mid-50s always set goals but the more I've researched recently setting the goals isn't really what it's about it's because then, you, you know, that goal, you only hit it for a certain period in time. It's more about the process, isn't it? It's about saying to yourself, I'm on a journey and there are often bumps in the road.
0: Absolutely. And I think goal setting can be useful for some people. And some people naturally will work in, in, that, in a goal-oriented way. And in fact, even therapy will say, well, what are your goals? So that we know are we're reaching. But I think the problem is that when we reach goals, often it's not what we thought it would be and I guess even with weight loss that's difficult because you might be thinking if I get to this particular weight I I can get in that particular style of dress I'll be happy you don't know if you are going to be happy you know if, if we do a sort of I'll be happy when I've got the car I'll be happy when I have Another child, or I'll be happy when I get this promotion. You know, you're putting your happiness onto external things, and happiness can only come internally from us. So, although goals might motivate us, and they're good for that, and they at least direct us in the right direction, I think you've got to be careful about putting your happiness onto specific things that you're trying to meet or achieve. Uh, Things like, you know, if you if you're a natural anxiety sufferer, or you struggle with maintaining your weight you're going to have to make changes that are always going to be part of your daily life. And it's about getting into the routine of those changes and getting into a daily practice, whatever that might be, um, that works for you um, and sticking to those things. So if you kind of think, okay, well, I can't have chocolate in the house because I'll eat it. When you get to your ideal weight, you then still can't have chocolate in the house if you think you're going to eat it. You know, we suddenly get to the goal and we think, well, I can shift back to that and go back to how we'll change things. But it's actually, I think, the maintenance of any Anything like if you don't feel anxious anymore, okay. Now's the time you've still got to put in your best anxiety strategies so that it doesn't come back. It's not that like, okay, I'm anxious, so let's not worry about it. No, you've got to be more proactive. I think when we feel good about ourselves, actually, and when we're feeling positive, we don't put in the things that help us. We said like like it's like with vitamins, isn't it? If you feel well, you don't take your vitamins. We should, but you know, because people don't, they kind of think, well, I'm all right now, I don't need them. Well, yeah, you need them because you need to maintain. You've got yourself to this place because of the vitamins and eating well, so that's when you need to maintain it. But that's the most likely place that we're likely to then change our behaviour and it be unsuccessful.
1: No, it's great advice. And I remember uh, a Chinese—I uh, think it's a proverb or certainly a saying—that you know, people that uh, are anxious tend to be living, you know, too far in the future because you're anxious about what's about to happen. People that are depressed tend to be living in the past, and happiness is in the now. But yeah. when, if you are in the now and you are happy right now, make sure you sort of do everything you can to maintain that because you know, it's easy to start looking in the past or you know, worrying about the future too much. Post-COVID, post uh, you know, maybe changing diet, if anxiety is mainly about thinking too much about the future, how do we come back and, you know, you know gratitude in the moment right now? How, is there any tips for that?
0: I I think you've you've given a really good example there. Gratitude is a way to come back into the present moment. You know, anxiety will uh, project us into the future because it's trying to protect us from something. It's the brain's way of kind of saying that's a bad thing. Don't do that. A lot of anxiety is about anticipation. And once we get to the thing that we think might make us feel anxious, actually, usually it's not as bad as we thought. In fact, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it won't be as bad as we as we think it's going to be. So I think it's about sort of not sometimes we can think of the future as being true and we sort of say, okay, but that's how it's it's, going to be. And actually, it's not. It's about coming back into the present moment and just reminding ourselves and our brains. If you're, you mentioned the chimp paradox earlier, if your chimp brain, you kind of, older the part of your brain is kicking off and saying there's danger, there's danger, there's bad things. Sort of in the present moment, there probably is not. Probably nothing bad is happening right now. You might be worried about going back to work. You might be worried about sort of whatever it might be. But it's about, it's okay, but that thing isn't happening now. Right now, as I sit here, everything is okay. And one technique I teach people in, in management of feelings is, you know, if you check in with yourself a couple of times a day and you stop yourself and say, but am I okay right now? Actually, in the second that I'm checking, probably give it a number out of 10. You probably are. You might have stuff going on in your life and, and things going on in the world. But actually, am I okay right in this moment? The chances are that you will be somewhere within that probably four to six or hopefully higher range.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely priceless advice. And again, a lot of people worry about things they can't control. Try and teach my kids that, you know, know, only focus on the things that that you can control. Because if it's outside your control, you know, you can't control, a little bit you can, uh, your own little world maybe, but you you can't control that there's going to be a second wave of corona. You can't control certain things. Focus your energy on that that you can make a difference on.
0: Absolutely. And focus on what you can control. So yes, you're right. We don't know whether there's going to be a second wave. We don't know what's going to happen. Use past experience as a good predictor, is the best predictor of future behaviour. So you manage this change. Okay. You've had to. If you're sitting here watching this, you've managed that the changes that came into place before. Okay. You will manage them again. Um, and it's just a bit of having faith in yourself, really, that you, you will manage things. Um, I think that's the key to it, really.
1: Yeah, that's no, great What was the uh, book you mentioned uh, early on? You talked about the, the, the guy that says you can have the one sip of wine and just looking at the bottle. What was that book called? Because I'm going to read that one.
0: Oh, Eckhart Tolle. Um, Tolle is T-O-L-L-E. It's very heavy going stuff. He's a thought leader. He's done absolutely a uh, brilliant podcast with um, Oprah Winfrey, which I'll screenshot and send you on Instagram. It's incredible. Great. But it's very, very it's really heavy going stuff. I mean, I can listen to about 10 minutes at a time and then I have to process it and kind of then come back. But I'll send you, honestly, if you can get on that podcast, it's incredible. And he's written the power of now and it's life changing stuff. Honestly, this guy's like not on this planet. I mean, he's just amazing the way that he thinks about things and, He's trying to do a new earth movement. He's like you, you know, he's trying to like change how people see things and do things on a mass level. He's, you know, he's, yeah, you definitely need to look at him. He's brilliant.
1: The power of Absolutely now. I will, I will definitely, definitely do that. Well, it's been yeah. lovely, lovely talking to you.
0: Oh, aren't you. Well,
1: you? Wasn't that fascinating? Anna Simmons was really brilliant today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, keep watching the series. We're going to find out a lot more with a lot more psychologists about all those food choices that we're making in the main subconsciously. If you enjoyed this
0: podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FF podcast, and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.